We are um, going to look at something today. Every once in a while about this time of year, we take a couple of sermons and I, I just hit on things that I think are so important for us. To, uh, they're familiar with us. We know them. It's good to review. It's good to kind of go over again. And today we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at this idea of who is my neighbor. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what it's known as. And uh, this is, I think, very important for us because it's one of Jesus' most famous stories. I mean, people, you don't have to be somebody who's interested in the Bible to be aware of this story and some of the implications of this story. And so you're probably familiar with the title character. My fear is it's kind of lost some of its sting. It's kind of gotten defanged. And I want to look at this story again in terms of what it meant, starting with the original listeners. This is something, I mean, you know, if you've come here, I, I, I love history. I love looking into the cultural background. In other words, what were the people who Jesus said this story to? What were they familiar with? What would they have been thinking? As best we know, what would they have been thinking? Now, this doesn't change the story, but in some ways it helps deepen it in our understanding to understand how, at least with this one, how radical it is, how absolutely radical Jesus was being. And, and in some ways, how offensive he was willing to be to get across. So we're going to look at this story in terms of the original listeners and then apply it to you and me because at its heart, this story brings something for everyone. And so we're going to start with Luke chapter 10, verse 25 and 26. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. All right. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, uh, uh, he, oh yeah, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So, okay, so there's some key things here I want us to see. First of all, understand something. It says he was testing Jesus. All right, so this is not an honest seeker who's coming for information on how to live closer to God. Okay, this is a guy who, with, probably with help some other people, going, we gotta trick him. We gotta get him to say something. Get Jesus to say something that will turn the crowds against him or will turn the Romans against him. We've got to figure out how to trap him. So this is a trap. It's a trap, right? This is a trap. This is what's going on here. And so it's not an honest search for the truth. But it is asking a question. Who is it that God wants me to love like I love myself? And it's not, to me, this is really key. This is not out of the blue. This isn't just like this guy said, well, let's ask him about the neighbor. I don't know, you know, let's ask him. No, this is a well-known debate that is going on in the time of Jesus. And, the, and so we got to get a little background here. we got to dig in a little bit. And here is background. This is from Leviticus 19. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Do, do, neck, do not seek revenge, it's supposed to say. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. This is the original verse that this whole argument has started because what do Pharisees and what do priests do when they look at something in the law? They start going, okay, what does this mean? Well, first of all, brother, that's familial. So family obviously is neighbor. It says uh, your people, so that's the Jews. So Jews are obviously our neighbors. No one else. It doesn't go any further in this passage. 
They kind of ignore that later in uh, Leviticus 19, conveniently, where it says, talks about the foreigner or the immigrant who's in your midst, you're supposed to, how you're supposed to treat them. They kind of, because you were immigrants, God tells them. But they, they ignore that. They start with this and they start arguing. So how do we apply this? Okay, family, yes, I need to be good to my family. Other Jews, I should be good to other Jews. What about Gentiles? Nope. Okay, what about a Gentile who converts to Judaism? This, and, and this is how, you know, we can make fun sometimes. This is how they would get on these weird little tangents and argue about them, just vociferously, just, just argue and argue and argue, and they became a big thing. A Gentile who converts to, to, to Judaism, is he my neighbor? And some rabbis some teachers said, no, he's not. Some said, yes, he is, he converted. And it was a big contentious fight in that day. It was something that was going on. So what is he doing? He's tapping into this big fight and saying, Jesus, you gotta pick sides here. And this is what I love about, you just read this all throughout, the, all throughout scriptures. Jesus almost always answers questions with another question. He is a master at this. And so what does he do? He flips it on his head to him, right? He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So this guy goes, I'm gonna trap Jesus. And all of a sudden this guy's going, wait, he's making me explain, right? And so, so he, he, the guy says correctly, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's it, you got it, go do that. And the guy's like, he didn't answer my question. And so then he reframes it. He reframes it and says, who is my neighbor? So he, he pins, trying to pin Jesus down to this contentious argument that is going on in that day. But here's the thing. The argument was about a convert. If you talk about Gentiles, Romans, anybody else, no, they're not your neighbor. And, and the teaching was very, very uh, clear on that. They talked about this all, they would talk about this a lot, and there's a number of places in the Talmud where they talk about this, where they would say, you know, the, 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 the experts would say, and here's one of them, if a Gentile is in any danger of death, you are not bound to deliver him. Such a one is not your neighbor. There's one other where they say, if you happen to live with some Gentiles, and maybe you guys go fishing together, you work together, and he falls in the water, you are not bound to help him out of the water. He's not your neighbor. You can help him if you want, but you can let him die if you want too. See, Gentiles, no way. Even if it was a coworker, even if it was somebody living near you or with you that you worked with, he's not your neighbor. So there was no argument about that. And so what's going on here? This guy is saying to Jesus, where do you come down on this big debate? How do we treat converts? Because there's no other debate about this. That's where I think sometimes we lose a little bit here. We, we don't realize this is what's going on here. And so Jesus is going to tell him a story. He's going to tell him a parable, and Jesus is going to tell a parable that can get him in a lot of trouble, right? And fundamental to this story is its structure. It was a certain kind of structure that was popular back then, and it's a structure, interestingly, that is popular today. It's called the rule of three. There's three main characters. One character does something. First character does something. The second character does the same thing. So the audience is set up, and then the third character comes and does you know, the right thing or surprises everybody kind of like a punchline. And we have that. They're not as uh, popular as they were 20 years ago because we're beginning to realize that maybe some of them were offensive. 
you know, people talk about a Swede, an Irishman, and a Dutchman walked into a bar, or a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walked into a bar. Those are, those are the rule of three jokes, stories. And this is what Jesus is doing here. All right? So Jesus says in reply to the question, where do you come down on the neighbor debate? Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So Jesus begins to tell this story, and he's going to tell a story that's a rule of three story, very familiar to them. And he's going to, everyone can picture this scene. This is something that would be right out of, they would understand it. They would understand it. The road to Jerusalem from Jericho is a 17-mile road that winds through mountains. It can be very dangerous. There's lots of caves. There's lots of, of, of twists and turns where people could hide, where people could get robbed. So to, to go on the road to Jericho or from Jericho to Jerusalem by yourself, one person, would be considered a little dangerous. It would be considered dangerous. And it would be one of those things where they go, yeah, well, he should have known People get robbed on that road. So he gets, this man does this and he gets in trouble and they leave him lying on the ground and a priest comes by. So priest is man number one, person number one in this three-person story. He's probably riding. Priests tend to be uh, richer. So he's probably riding. He's probably got a donkey, something like that. He's riding. And, and so I just want you to picture this because this is a picture from the, the, that road that we're talking about uh, about 70 or 80 years ago before it was fully, before it was developed. This would have been the Jericho Road right there. It's not an eight-lane highway. It's not Interstate 64. You know, it's, it's just a dirt path that's like a large sidewalk. That's what they would be looking at. That's what they would be thinking of. And this man has fallen into trouble, who will help him? This is the big story. This is the overarching story that's going on here. And there's no, no police, there's no highway patrol, there's no 911. A guy has been beaten up and robbed. And if you stop, what might happen to you? The same thing. It's kind of a risky deal. So this priest has to decide, do I help this man? It's a risky deal. Secondly, and I think because he's a priest, this may be on his mind. He serves in the temple. He handles tithes. He leads worship. He offers sacrifices. And to do that, you have to be in a, in a state of, of purity. The Jews would call it that he would be clean. Ritual purity. And it's an important observance for priests because it kind of showed their devotion to God. And, and uh, if you head down uh, to Jerusalem in, to do religious observances and you become unclean, it becomes a time-consuming, like a week of going through this ritual cleansing to get clean again, which would be a pain in the neck for a priest. And in the law, it says it's written that if you touch a corpse, you have become unclean. In the oral law that the Jews kept orally, they said if you touch a Gentile, you become unclean. So he sees this body in the road, and what does he know? Is it a Jew or is it a Gentile? He can't ask the man because the man's half dead. And actually, this is kind of a term. It was interestingly, as I did a little word study on this term, this is kind of a technical term. The Jews, the Jews kind of delineated stages of death. And the last stage before being totally dead was being, they would call it being half dead. And actually, 
there's a, there's a quirky little movie that brings this out. If you've seen Prince's Bride, then you know the hero Wesley is thought to be dead. They take him to Miracle Max, and Miracle Max says, oh, he's not all dead. He's mostly dead. He's mostly dead, but he's a little alive. That's good rabbinic thinking right there, okay? That's good Jewish thinking right there. He's saying he's mostly dead, but he's a little bit alive. It's the stage before you expire. I should take that off. You guys are going to sit there, and pretty soon you're going to be quoting it. Yeah, I know, I know, all right? So this priest, what is he going to do? He can't touch a corpse. He knows he shouldn't. He can't touch a Gentile. He doesn't know if this man's a Gentile. How do you know if a person's a Jew or a Gentile? One way you really know is the way they dress. They were distinctive differences in the way they dress. But you notice how brilliant this story is? What did Jesus say happened to that man? They stripped him of his clothes. So now this priest doesn't know. He can't know. And so he's thinking, is he an insider or an outsider? Will he defile me or not defile me? He doesn't know. He does know something. This is a human being injured on the side of the road who deeply needs help. That he knows. And so he has to make a decision. Is my moral and ritual purity more important than this badly injured human being? And so he walks by. He walks on by. Then guy number two comes along. And so now this is establishing the pattern that they're very familiar with in uh, Luke 10, 32. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite is in the priestly family, but they're not priests. They, can't, they would go to the temple and just help the priests. That's what the Levites generally did. And then they would go home and work a regular job 11 months out of the year. And then one month they'd go and help the priests who were there all the time. So we have this story. It's a rule of three. First guy just doesn't do anything. Second guy comes, and now it's the same thing. He came to the place, and he passed by on the other side. Now, the Levites aren't quite like the priests. They're not as rich as the priests. He probably was walking. He doesn't have as much money. They're not as, they're not as held accountable in terms of ritual purity as the priests are because they're not offering the sacrifices. But here's the thing. Regardless, he could have stopped. He could have noticed. He could have said something. He could have prayed. He could have given him first aid. He could have maybe tried to stop the bleeding, but it doesn't. It's the same pattern. He sees, he does nothing, and he leaves. Now, up to this point, from the crowd's point of view, this is a good story. This is a, pretty, this is a good story. It's realistic. They can all picture it happening. They've all heard of these types of things happening, right? Um, right, before, right before Thanksgiving, my wife and I were on 64, heading towards the tunnel the day before Thanksgiving, and, uh, and, and the traffic, you know, the tunnel, the traffic started slowing down, stopped for a second, and then just started to go again. And all of a sudden, I just heard, bang, bang. And I looked in my rearview mirror, and there was a gigantic, tra- bigger than the normal ones, I think. It was filled up my mirror, just tractor-trailer truck coming at me, just barreling at me. And I was like, uh, so... I saw there was a space in the, in the lane next to me, so I hit the gas. I thought, man, if I cut in there, he'll miss me. It didn't occur to me, he'll crush the next guy. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about the next guy. He'll miss me. And then, but he got me. Wham! My car flew in, and then he 
peeled over, smashed this other car. This Mustang got on top of it. He was going so fast. Got on top of it, right? We all know this. I'm not, I'm not making this one up, though. This is true. But understand, this is a story we all kind of know. We've all, we're all familiar with that this stuff happens. You know, some guy's texting and he's not paying attention, maybe falling asleep, whatever. And he runs into stop traffic doing 60 miles an hour in a tractor-trailer truck and just destroys four cars. And we know that happens. We understand that. This is a story. Right now, they're all going, yep, yep, this is familiar. We know how this works. We know how this, how, how this goes. These two guys, dad, those priests, we knew they were like that. All they think about is money. Man, Levite, I'm a little disappointed in him. I thought maybe he'd do better, but man. So they can all imagine it. They don't mind dissing the priest because the priests were thought as collaborators with the Romans. And so they're waiting for guy number three. You know, they, 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 they didn't like the priests. Levites, eh. The ones they revered were the rabbis. Rabbis were revered throughout the land of Israel. And, and, and Jesus was a rabbi. His teaching was so powerful. They understood that. And so there's these stories, just like our day that they have, that they tweak somebody. They tweak the first two people. You know, they, would, they make jokes about them. They kind of mock them. If we had a story like that today, um, maybe we'd talk about, we'd tweak or we'd mock a, a politician, you know? everybody's united in their sense that yeah, there's so much corruption. It's so the, uh, 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 like that. And everybody would agree with it. This is, Jesus has got, I want you to understand what a master to- storyteller he is. I mean, he's God, so that helps a lot. Um, he, he's got them in the palm of his hand. He's telling them a story that they're like, yes, yes, exactly. I know how that works. And they're waiting for guy number three. And in Israel, when they would do these stories of three, Guy number three would be an ordinary Israelite, just a layman. They would call them the Amrats, the man of the people. And that little, that little phrase, a man of the people, the poor people, that's us. Not a lot of resources. Life's hard, not educated, not able, not able to strictly observe the law because it's just so expensive and so time-consuming. Joe Sixpack, this would be like a regular guy. And so now the crowd is ready for this. They're ready for this. You ever hear when somebody does one of those three people walk into a bar and they talk what the first two people say and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what's the third one? I know it's going to be funny. This is going to be good. So that's what they're, they're like. Yes, 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 Jesus, give it to us. And he does. He does. There's a priest that doesn't do so good. There's a Levite that doesn't do so good. And then Joe the plumber comes by. That's what they're waiting for. And Jesus drops a bomb on them, right? You dropped a bomb on me. He drops it on them. There's a priest, there's a Levite, and then he says, and along comes a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Now, when he said Samaritan to that crowd, I want to tell you something. They're really, really upset. They're upset because this is a bad word. This is a bad word. The Samaritans are their mortal enemies. We've talked about this as we've gone through John. But one thing, like even recently, in early in Jesus' day, when he was a kid, there was an, a, a, 
a, a big uproar at the temple because some Samaritans had snuck in and they threw human bones into the temple and then bolted out a door and ran away and defiled the whole temple. The whole thing had to be shut down. They had to go through this ritual cleansing and all this stuff, and they hated them. They hated them. They were despised so much that this is what one rabbi says in the Talmud. The person, the Israelite, that eats bread with Samaritans or sits at the table with a Samaritan, or even consumes food that has been grown by a Samaritan, is like him who eats the flesh of the swine. He says, you, we, we, you cannot eat pork. You cannot eat pork. And if you eat anything that a Samaritan grows, it's like you're eating pork. It's like you're, you are offending God if you talk to a Samaritan, you eat with a Samaritan, you sit with a Samaritan, you eat something that they've grown, you are offending God. He hates that. Why? Because God hates Samaritans. That's what they believed. And so Jesus throws this, you know, just like, boom. Then a Samaritan came by. And now the whole story's been flipped, right? Their first thought is, he's gonna butcher the man. He's gonna see if there's anything, they, they can't, and so Jesus is telling this story. He's pulled them all in. The guy gets beaten up. He's on a dangerous road. The priest comes by. The Levite comes by. And they're waiting for Joe Israel, Joe Sixpack, Joe the plumber. And they're loving it. That's why, you know, this story, this parable of the Good Samaritan, is such a bland story. To those Jews, that, you, you're dropping a terrible word when you say that. And so we know it by that, but it, it it's not a part of their lexicon. It's what we would say. It's not what they would say. They couldn't imagine a good Samaritan. And so he was crossing. Jesus was crossing every line of decency and good taste when he does that. When Jesus says that word, he's offending everyone in the crowd. He's not just offending the guy or a couple of guys that are trying to test him, that are trying to catch him, that are trying to trick him. He's an equal opportunity offender. He just offends every single person there because no Jew would be okay with this. This shows us somewhat of the courage that Jesus has. He knows, the, he knows what he's doing, and he deliberately does it. And he doesn't just slip the word Samaritan in there. Remember the, the parable of three. One comes, does nothing. One comes, does nothing. And what does Jesus say? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Real key there, he took pity on him. Pity is a word of the heart. It's a word, it's a heart word. He took pity on him. Jesus is implying that this Samaritan is closer to God than they are. Than those other two men, the priest and the Levite. And then he goes on and says, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, which is a significant amount of money, and gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And what does Jesus do? He says, there's this Samaritan. And they're like, what? And he says, and then the Samaritan, his heart broke for that man. And they're like, what? And then he's like, and then Jesus did, this, and then the Samaritan did this, and he did this, and he just piles it on. He did this, he did this. When you read that, especially, in the, it's just short phrases. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. All the things you would not do. 
this man did. He, all these action words, that action verbs that indicate concern and love. And so, so he made up for the Levite. The Levite could have at least given first aid or bandaged the guy. He does that. He made up for the priest. The priest could have carried the guy to the next town on his donkey. He does that. He cared for him. He took him to the inn. And then one other thing. A number of years ago when I was studying this, I started thinking about this. What do you think the situation would be like when a Samaritan comes walking into a Jewish village with a half-dead Jew strapped to his donkey? Things could get ugly really quick. In other words, this man acted and knew that he could pay a price for his actions. He knew there was a possibility of being misunderstood, of people thinking he did that to that man. He knew that was a possibility. He knew what Jews thought of Samaritans. And so he does that. He makes up for the Levite. He makes up for the priest. Jesus tells this unbelievable story. He ticks everyone off. And then he turns to this religious expert who tried to trick him. And he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Notice he doesn't say, oh, the Samaritan. He's not even going to get that word out of his mouth. He says, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. I'm willing to acknowledge that. But this is part of what can be very explosive here because a lot of times people don't understand this as it's coming out of this story. Remember what triggered Jesus into telling this story. Who is my neighbor? Who is the neighbor? And what is Jesus saying? The man on the ground is the neighbor? No, he's not saying that. If you read that, what he says is the Samaritan is the neighbor. He pushes them. He pushes them in a way they don't want to go. The one who showed mercy, the person you hate most in the world is your neighbor. And as we apply this and think about it in terms of our lives, what is the tribe? What is the group? What is the ideology? What are the people that set your teeth on edge? Jesus says, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. See, this isn't some pleasant little hallmark story about being nice to people. Jesus has gone way past that. This is deliberately scandalous, deliberately in your face. It's a courageous challenge to a group of people. And ultimately, this, Jesus will pay a big price for teaching these types of things. This is what turns them again. This is what gets the priests and the teachers of the law to hate him. These types of things. And he's challenging us. He's saying, who do you demonize? Who is the other for you? Who could it be? Who is the Samaritan? Who is the outsider? You just fill in the blank. In our culture, there's lots of opportunities for us to to demonize other people. It may be demonize people who are politically different from us, people who are racially different from us, people who come from different countries than us, people who have different religions than us. It's very easy to demonize those people. Very easy. Um, um, We had a shooting in a school, right? 
And our hearts break for that. My grandson goes to that school. Our hearts break for that. Right? But you know, those things are happening all over the world on a grand scale. When it's close, we feel it more. We feel it more. And, and I'm not against it. I'm not saying that's wrong. But we had earlier this week a football player almost die on the field and these just courageous these paramedics that kept him alive on the way to the hospital and saved his life. And it has, it has moved our country. But you know, people are dying all over the place. And God is saying to us, just because you don't see that person, I still care about that person. Just because that person is not an integral part of your life, I care about that person. I want you to wrestle with that. Jesus is pushing them to wrestle with that. They don't live, Samaritans don't live in Judea. There were a few that we know of possibly that lived in Jerusalem because it was a metropolitan city and there was protection and all that, but they don't, they don't live with the Jews. It was someone who was not normally a person they saw very often. All they knew was they hated them because they were different racially. They were different, they were different uh, religiously, culturally. They were different on all those levels. And so we know we don't like them. And I know sometimes we'll sit there and say, but I'm not like that, but I don't have anybody that I naturally hate. Yes, but let me ask you something. Is there sometimes something happens to a person and it just doesn't bother you that much? Maybe there's the problem. Maybe there's the problem. It just doesn't bother me that much. Because here's the deal. Jesus has called us to be his children. He's called us for this, right? When we understand the price he paid, when you understand the life he lived, when you understand going to the cross for our sins, rising from the dead and saying, now, give my life, give me your life, and I will make something beautiful out of it. And we tend to settle for a nice house, a nice family, and a nice retirement, a nice whatever. We settle for that. And Jesus goes, that's not exactly what I had in mind for you. I want more. We're called to more. And Jesus was putting the scalpel in a very deep way into a group of listeners and, and, and to me. Because I, I too can justify my lack of love for other people. I can justify my coming and my seeing and my doing nothing and then going for people who have been beaten up in life and left at the curb. I can get to where I've seen it so much it doesn't bother me to see or hear about children starving in other parts of the world. Or families that are ravaged by drugs and different things, or folks who get left behind for whatever reason. And I think, I didn't see it, I didn't notice. They didn't live next door. They didn't look like me. They weren't what I think of as my neighbor. It's somebody else's job. I thought somebody else was gonna stop for them. I thought my stuff was my stuff. And see, here we have Jesus. And he loves all people. And he takes this all very seriously. And he's finishing this unbelievable, this gutsy, in-your-face, offensive story. And he turns to this religious leader and he says, now, go and do. 
likewise. It's interesting. He's saying to a Jew, I want you to become like a Samaritan. What a crazy thing. Something that's the exact opposite of what you're comfortable with. And when we begin to do that, begin to do life that way, we begin to do what God wants us to do for people who have been beaten up and left by the side of the road. And we, when we go and do, it changes us. It changes us. We become more like Jesus. Things break our hearts like they break Jesus' heart. Things bring us joy like it brings Jesus' joy. Now, I know, I understand. There's too much. I can't solve it. There's too much pain. There's too much death. There's too much hurt in this world for me to feel like I can make a difference in this world. And the point is, Jesus is saying, don't make a difference in this world. Make a difference in one person's life. Just start with one. Make a difference in one person's life. Because the good news of the gospel is not, it's good to be nice. And it's nice to be good. The good news is that God sends Jesus. Jesus comes into our world. He goes through a life where he serves, he heals, he does all these things. And he's still doing it. And he dies on the cross for forgiveness of our sins, and he's raised again. And he goes to be with the Father, and before he leaves, he tells his disciples, now, just as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and me. And so now we're a part of this team this revolution to change the world. And I don't know what that means for you. This is, see, this is, the, this, this is what's, in a sense, this is what's cool for me. I, I find sometimes, I, I listen to other people, I don't want to be too harsh on other pastors sometimes, and what they do is they start buttonholing people. They start saying, you need to do this. And I don't know what you need to do. I don't know. That's between you and God. But I encourage you with this. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Because I know this, there's a lot of people who are laying and bleeding and robbed and stripped on the side of the road. And the road is narrow, and we're walking it. So I don't know what it means for you. It might mean you go on a, a trip. It might mean, it might, might mean you, t- you get a book about something you think might be real important, and you, and you let God break your heart with it. It might be that you get involved in something very small. It might it might be something like just working with children in, 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 the, in children's church, or it could be something huger and bigger. I don't know. But what you do is you just pray, God, okay, if, I wanted, if I'm going to do something, you show me, show me. Help me see what it is. God, break my heart over something. Break my heart over something. And let me be a part of something bigger than myself. One of the coolest things sometimes is when we go to the port shelter, you know, coming back, people talking about things they saw and what happened and somebody said something and all those experiences. Sometimes it just goes real smooth and there's not much and sometimes yet there's something very very powerful and poignant that goes on. And let God break your heart over something. Wrestle with it. I think the biggest thing is we tend to slide things under and say, I don't need to worry about that. I can't make a difference. For 30-something years, my wife and I have supported uh, at least one child through Compassion International. And the whole point was, I can't help all the kids in the world, but I can help one. I can help one for $28 a month, and that kid will get two meals a day because of me, 
and will uh, go to a school. I can do that. It might be 32 now. I forget. It's around that. But it's like I can help one. I mean, whatever it is, God wants to use you. Just, just have an open heart to what he wants. The parable of the Good Samaritan. What is he telling us? There are people who are hurting and dying, and God is looking for people who will say, that's my neighbor. That's my neighbor. Wherever it is, whoever it is, they might be halfway around the world. They might be next door to you. God just wants us to have a heart that looks and sees. So just, I would encourage you this week, as you leave here, pray, God, show me somebody. Is there somebody? Somebody I know? Maybe it's somebody I'll see on, on television. Maybe it's something I'll see... Some, How can I do something and not just sit and walk by? Because if we're going to be uh, children of God, it demands action. The the Holy Spirit comes and works, and we begin to affect people's lives. This This is something that has to happen. We have to be different because of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his coming to this earth. We've just celebrated his advent and what he did on this earth and what he accomplished in dying for us. And forgive us, God, in that sometimes we turn Jesus into just a little part of our life and we forget the cost that he paid to be born, the cost of being a poor child in an impoverished family, of being taunted and being ridiculed in his life for the crucifixion on the cross and what was entailed there. We overlook it. We brush it aside. We don't think about it. God, help us to do that. And then help us to allow your word to impact us and to change the way we live. Lord, we look forward to your spirit working and empowering us to be able to impact people's lives in a way that can last for eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.